Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sinn Féin have so far denied they are backing the campaign. Earlier today I spoke to their deputy leader, Rory O'Connor, who under broadcasting restrictions must inhale helium to subtract credibility from his statements. So what's your initial statement? These incidents are inevitable given the position of the British government. You do support this campaign then? The IRA have been forced into this position. So you do support this campaign of violence? The IRA... Sinn Féin is a legitimate political party. Which supports terrorist action. Your tone is antagonistic and you're making me very angry. And since we conducted that interview, all sides in the conflict have had a meeting and have sorted everything out. Welcome to Free Train, everyone. <laughs> How are you doing, Joe? Good, brother. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I was looking at Michelle O'Neill at the coronation of, of King Charles and accepting the invitation, which ended up on the front page of the mail in in the UK, uh, they took a perhaps unsurprisingly ungenerous view of it, but it was something kind of that I think you probably felt was had some significance. Well, I I, I did a I was on a panel with um, Gregory Campbell once, the DUP politician, and it was at the West Belfast Festival, and. You know, it was a huge big crowd there and Gregory was very, very welcome. You know, uh, in spite of his, you know, public sectarianism and bigotry, etc. He was very welcome and we were having tea during the interval. And he said to me, you know, I wish the uh, Protestant people had the confidence of your people. You know, referring to, you know, how refreshing and self-confident the nature of the debate was in the questions from the audience. And I said, well, they will whenever you start leading. Mm. And so from our perspective, you know, from the perspective of anybody who's interested in a civilised society, the monarch is an extremely important part of British life and of unionist identity. And so it's very important that Michelle goes there and I think the decision, you know, it was inevitable that she was going to go there. We've seen, we've seen her interactions with King Charles before this and Alex Maskey, who was one of the youngest detainees in Longkesh detention camp. You know, and uh, this is um, just part of real politics. 
Mm. And the, 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 the problem is, of course, to try to get the DUP involved. In when, when was that Gregory Campbell event? What? Oh, it was some years ago at West Belfast Festival. You can get some snippets of it on YouTube. You know, I was lampooning Gregory's attitude to Gaelic Games, for example. Be- he, was, because he called the, the GA, the IRA at play. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because because it's funny, because when you talk about that, what he said to you about that lack of confidence, um, we saw that, and it wasn't restricted to the unionists or, or to some unionist politicians, but that lack of confidence seems to have actually become contagious within that overlap between unionism and the, their supporters in the UK, you know, the GB News, the Mail, the Express, the Telegraph, these places, they they all took a very similar position and stance, which again probably tells of that lack of confidence when, when Joe Biden visited Ireland. Well, the, 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 those media outlets are only using the DUP, you know, because the DUP... Um, like them, like those media outlets, have an an, an irresistible attraction to cunts. <laughs> um, so we saw, you know, when Donald Trump uh, was the president, that the DUP eulogized him. They held a banner saying, you know, Trump for president mm. and... The, the DUP MPs in Parliament you know, debased themselves by holding up their thumbs t- to this guy who wouldn't piss on them if they were in fire. Uh, you know, we see their irresistible attraction to Nigel Farage, you know. But again... And, th- and, and, and I think that that is symbolic of this lack of confidence and also this inbuilt streak of supremacy you know, if they get the opportunity, they simply, we see this with Arlene Foster, you know, the shackles were on her when she was the first minister to some extent, to a limited extent, but she's revealing all her bigotry now, reveling in all her bigotry. And, uh, I mean, obviously it's pathetic and we've got to get on and we will get on. You know, I believe that Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, for example, if he wasn't so frightened, you know, if he wasn't a natural coward, which he is, would like to get on. I believe that he would like to get on and to do business. Because, um, you know, it's embarrassing. Basically, it's embarrassing. And, you know, what we're seeing with, with Sinn Féin is just an embrace of real politics. You know, this is, this is what has to be done in politics. There's no big deal about it. Get on, treat each other with a bit of respect. Mm. And let's get let's get things moving. I mean, Joe Biden comes to the north. He says, "Look, he's appointed Joe Kennedy as his business envoy." Joe Kennedy's a serious guy. Um, there are umpteen multinationals, American multinationals, who are prepared to invest up to eight billion a year in the north, which would be enormous for us. Enormous. You know, so long as we make the right policy choices in Stormont, we won't get into the sort of unaffordability of houses and things that's been happening in the South. But that's massive. And yet there you have them, I mean, just roundly abusing the president of the most powerful country in the world. Saying, you know, Arlene Foster saying he hates the UK. Uh, Sammy Wilson saying that he has his uh, mother's bigotry. He's embedded with his mother's bigotry, um, which... uh, I think I think um, I think a, I think a psychoanalyst would um, 
would would sort of be flagging Sammy Wilson using the word bigotry uh, as a as a as a tell of some sort. But it's funny you yeah, say. And he call, I think he, I think my recollection of Sammy called him a bigot. <laughs> it wasn't just a bigot. It was a bigoted ignoramus. Now, the idea that a statesman in a tiny inconsequential. You know, in terms of the world, inconsequential place like the North, yeah. with just over a million and a half people living there, you know, would publicly um, berate the President of America, you know, in these circumstances. Now, look, it's, it's, it, it doesn't make any difference to, to the President. You know, the President has good intentions insofar as the North's concerned. He's made that clear. You know, these are... You know, it it it's just so embarrassing, but it is part and parcel of a, a deep genetic thing, a deep sort of tradition that's there of supremacy to what they would call the Roman Catholic, and something that we have, you know, grown up with and mm. seen, and you know, the demographic has changed, everything has transformed utterly. You know, reality is is here now to stay, and yet that older generation in particular simply cannot get beyond those supremacist ideals that they grew up with. But is the supremacist supremacy underpinned by an insecurity too, which is historic as well, isn't it? Because that sense of feeling under siege, feeling uh, well. I mean, I was. You know, thinking about this when we were talking about when it became clear actually during the Uap which Ra podcast, given the huge volume of emails and you know the huge response that mm. there was, that people said, "I wasn't really aware of this. I hadn't thought about it in that way. I wasn't aware of those facts." And I think a good place to start is um, I discovered footage of Leonard Hutchinson, who was one of the grandees in the. You know the old, utterly unionist dominated, dominated London Dairy Council. So you had, you know, um, eight thousand Catholic adults mm. had no vote. They were gerrymandered into the, the the South Ward, and I think it would be worth just to listeners listening to this and and and. You know, I thought of things like the Ku Klux Klan, like like the American Civil Rights Movement. You know, it, it's it's strikingly similar. And and Leonard, don't forget. Do you think as that it is unreasonable to demand one man, one vote in 1968 in the United Kingdom? I think that that will come in due course, and that's under. Uh, uh, we're thinking about that at the moment. They, that is, the Parliament is thinking of that at the moment. You think it's a perfectly reasonable demand? I, I wouldn't comment on that at the moment. They say quite simply, every time your political position has been threatened, you've fixed the boundaries. You've done it five times in 30 years, and now the situation is that there are 8,000 people, roughly, who have no votes whatsoever, and the, in terms of the proportions, there are far more people in the, in the South Ward. Because that suits the people in the South Ward. Because the South Ward is a Roman Catholic ward. They live there, quite happy. We mix with them too, of course. There's no <laughs> such thing as uh, 
a white ghetto and all, all that nonsense uh, at all. There's a photograph published some time ago in the, one of the local papers here, a nationalist paper. And it showed a picture of 365 children, aged five, who were entering a Roman Catholic school for the first time in the South Nationalist Ward. Below that picture, there was another picture of 11 sets of twins. And last week, a Roman Catholic woman gave birth to her 26th <laughs> child. So no council, no corporation of whatever color could keep pace to the houses required for all these people. Because the people of this city are, by and large, a very happy community. <laughs> who live peaceably together, who work together, who play together. And if the people from outside the city who agitate these people would remain away and leave it to ourselves, we would still remain a quite happy. The kernel of the community. whole thing is that these people are out to expose this city here as, as best they can. And the, there's no need for it. We could have an inquiry today which would show our angle up to the very best advantage. <laughs> 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 and in a way, in a way, in a very real way, the casual, you know, really deep-seated automatic sectarianism that it was really like the, 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 the blacks in America, like apartheid South Africa, you know, wh why are they upset? I mean, look, they, they're perfectly happy in their own sort of ghetto. They, they don't have the vote fair enough. They don't have... Uh, any adequate housing, mm. the council doesn't provide that. But what do you do? Because these finions are breeding like rabbits, but they're very happy rabbits. They're very happy rabbits. <laughs> and so <laughs> and sometimes and sometimes we even speak to them. <laughs> sometimes we 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 even well I mean mixing is probably too strong a word that I mean, Leonard used. Did, yeah. In hindsight I think he probably was exaggerating he there. But, but you know that don't forget, it's 1968. Yeah. You know, and and that's that was the reality of life in the North. Vast mm. sort of swathes of the Catholic people had no vote. Yeah. Uh, I mean, don't forget that one of the one of the linchpins, one of the the turning points, was whenever the Gildernew family. So Michelle Gildernew, who's now the MP for Fermanagh South Toronto. Very confident, clever girl. I was in school with her brother, Colm, who's an MLA. Colm was one of the cleverest fellas that ever went through St. Pat's Armagh. Also a tremendous right hook, which he hit me with one day. Sitting in chemistry class. What, why, very, why would he, anyone randomly Col hit Col Joe Brawley? Colm was a very fascinating fella. And I used to stay close with him because he was endlessly inventive and imaginative. Mm. He was unbelievably imaginative person and extremely funny and I was sitting beside him in chemistry class in the, in the high stools and he said something to me and I said no I don't think that can be right Colm because A, B and C and he just banged me just knocked me off the stool onto the ground and then helped me up and he says oh just he says I had you a bit hard there I had you a bit hard actually I met him in the Doyle uh, for Joe Biden's, oh, really? for Joe Biden's okay. speech and uh, you know and again these people are very confident, very well. Anyway, the Gildernew family, their mother and father had, I think, 11 children. Mm. And they'd applied for a council house in the Dungannon ward. And it was allocated to a single Protestant girl. Mm. And it, Austin Curry, 
who eventually came to the south, you know, and to yeah. I mean, and Austin had his own problems. Like, but Austin said that he was going to camp with the Gilder New family in the house when the bailiffs came and the police, etc. But he didn't, you know, and. Uh, They'll say the, the Gilder News could battered out of the place, but yeah. it caused it caused a huge uproar. But this was this was the reality of life, you know. And you know, I mean, whenever this whole unionist celebration of Northern Ireland's centenary mm. came along, you know, which was a bit like celebrating slavery and inviting the leaders of the African American community to sit at the back of a bus waving as it drove through Mississippi, you know, we had to endure all of that. And, yeah. and and that what led up to what we talked about in our Upwitra uh, yeah. you know, podcasts it's very important to understand because what was v- very forcible to me I don't know about you after those podcasts was the number of people who said I had no idea I know I'm thinking about this in a totally different way well it has been and as as uh as somebody you know coming from the south, and it's been interesting getting that reaction from people. And I think it is um, when we talked in part two about education and learning more about it. It has been an overwhelming response from people in that regard. I think especially from people in the south. Uh, but it's um, but it is one of those things that it's it's funny because I interviewed. Sean O'Higgin for the for the currency for the Good Friday Agreement. Sean O'Higgin was a a diplomat who did a huge amount of work getting, especially around the Downing Street Declaration, but before that in America, getting American involvement um, in Ireland in the in the right place, and also using that as a counterweight, because as he put it, the British British always tended to underestimate. Ireland have no interest in Ireland, and yet they place, place a huge store in American opinion, and they maybe overemphasize it in terms of we see it even today yeah. talking about the special relationship. And he <coughs> recognized that to get the American uh, involvement, you know, Ted Kennedy, Daniel Moynihan, all these people going back, that was a huge thing in terms of getting the British to focus on it in a way that would actually make a difference. And he was a, a huge part of getting getting the British to the point of the Downing Street Declaration, which was led up to the first cease, first ceasefire and something that Albert Reynolds did. But in the course of that interview, he did say, and this was a, again a thing that struck me from a guy, like an incredibly <laughs> brainy guy, an incredibly dauntingly brainy guy who said to me mm. before I, I'd interviewed him, he, uh, he wanted my questions because he wanted to see, he wanted to... <laughs> understand my understanding my level of understanding of the issues oh, he wanted to know whether you were ignorant on the issues or... <coughs> it kind of reminded me of the, some of the Twitter response I got after the clips <laughs> the yeah, clips and, went and, out and, des- you know? and, deser- and deservedly okay, so okay fair enough but yeah. anyway the point he said this is the point I want to make about that he said he was talking about Northern Ireland he said sectarianism there was sort of an inherit inherited environment which I think is crucial, which defeated the efforts of any individuals to really overcome it. People could withdraw from it on a personal level or even on a community level to some extent, but it was there as part of the atmosphere. And you simply couldn't declare, I won't do any of that kind of thing, because if you made mistakes in that department, they could be very costly. See, it was, it was, 
it was the casual sort of irrelevant. It wasn't even the contempt so much. It was the casual irrelevance of Catholics in the North. Mm. I mean, they were not relevant to anything. They didn't get. They didn't get jobs in the council. They didn't have any public posts. You know, many were deprived of the vote. They couldn't mm. get decent housing. You know, but that was just part and parcel of the way things were, as summed up by by Leonard yeah. Hutchinson, who was seen actually as one of the more progressive voices. I mean, the. To trace it through, I mean, the North, whenever David Lloyd George, who was the British Prime Minister who presided over partition, whenever they were sitting down to make the decision about how to carve up the map, it was the determining factor was just a sectarian headcount based on the 1911 census. The options were four counties. They thought that was too small, but that would have been the northeastern counties. Nine counties, there were too many Catholics. The six counties was the least worst situation. But, you know, to be fair, if they had to go back, would they really have kept their own? Mm. You know, it might have made life a lot easier for them in the long run. <laughs> and uh, they chose six, and hell was unleashed on the Catholics mm. that remained. I mean, straight after that, you had the pogrom. Seven and a half thousand Catholics uh, were expelled from the shipyards, which was the biggest industry in the north. News reports from the time described how they were attacked. They were able to escape by, quote, hurling themselves into Musgrave Channel and swimming across to the Sydenham shore. Men armed with sledgehammers and other weapons swooped down on the Catholic workers and didn't even give them a chance for their lives. And in the words of James Craig, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, what followed was a Protestant parliament for a Protestant people. You know, And this was, this, this set the tone and this is how it was, up until the civil rights, Eamon McCann, Bernadette Devon, people like that in 1970, who were well educated and said, what the fuck? I mean, in, uh, Basil Brook in 1933, he was another prime minister of Northern Ireland, he told a 12th of July demo, I would, <laughs> it, one of those, I would not have a Roman Catholic about the place, neither should you. And the following day in Stormont, he said, there's not one of my colleagues here who doesn't agree entirely with me, and I would not withdraw a single word of what was said. And the extent of the state sectarianism was stunning. I'll give you a, This is one of my favourite examples, you know. You look back on it now and you think, wow. William Lowry was the Minister for Labour at Stormont during World War II. And he was agitated at the number of American soldiers stationed in the North who were Roman Catholic, as he put it. And then to his horror... <laughs> to, he was designated by a formal request from U.S. military command to find these Roman Catholic Marines a place of worship. He sourced a disused Orange Hall. It was the only place they could find. And then he explained to his parliamentary colleagues in a leaked memo that when the servicemen leave, we will have the place fumigated, quote, unquote. Now... Should say that Lowry was related by marriage to Conor Cruz O'Brien, mm. that inveterate sort of hater of Northern Catholics, who was instrumental in the formation of the view in the South that we were sectarian savages in the North. I mean, he was the minister for Post and Telegrams through the 70s. He introduced probably the most repressive censorship regime that had ever been introduced in a, in a civilized, so called civilized Western state. And uh, he said about Bill Lowry that he dined at his house regularly. He said, I liked him a lot. He wrote this in his memoirs. Bill was certainly not a bigot, you know. And, 
you had this situation where right up to 1969, the civil rights movement then hits the streets. And this is a very thumbnail sketch mm. of what happened. And the Prime Minister, Terence O'Neill, you know, who was like a Harry Enfield character, you know, he was so improbably posh, you know. And he was held up in quarters as a sort of a, in some quarters, as a paragon of reconciliation, you know. Presumably for comments like this one. It is frightfully hard to explain to Protestants, <laughs> he actually said that you can get it on YouTube somewhere, that if you give Roman Catholics a good job and a good house, they'll live like Protestants because they'll see neighbours with cars and television sets and they will refuse to have 18 children. <laughs> <laughs> now, to be fair, it's hard enough to argue with that. Mm. You know, could mean, I do remember on Station Road, old Mrs Tracy, Joan Tracy and Manasseh, they had 19 children and they just lived down from us. They lived mm. beside my Aunt Susie. And actually, whenever Manasseh died, his son, one of the twins, Tony Tracy, who played Gaelic football with me and won championships for Dungiven as a goalkeeper and as a corner forward, mm. he held up the potato peeler to great laughter in the church and he said, look, I'm putting this in the coffin because it was my father's prized possession. He spent his life peeling potatoes, you know. Mm. But this um, caricature of, of, of the Catholics, you know, as being, you know, breeders and, you know, not having any interest in education and being savages and all the rest of it. You know, that then spilled over into the approach taken by the Free State once the troubles broke out. And Conor Cruz O'Brien, who was a hater of, of Northern mm. Catholics, you know, and really a most atrocious bigot, he played a central role in all of that and was lauded was lauded by the Free State Establishment. I mean, Section 31, whenever he banned, he banned Sinn Féin entirely from the airwaves. Mm. I mean, as the editor of The Observer, he sacked Mary Holland because mm. he felt that she was too, uh, she was too sort of pro, she was too sympathetic to what was happening in the North. And, and here we are. Is it any wonder that so many young people and even not so young people in the South, I mean, I... I had I had a drink last night with Michael McLaughlin, you know, a good friend of mine, the editor mm. of Penguin Ireland. And mm. he said those podcasts up which he said like they were absolutely eye opening. Yeah. Because it's not something that's talked about or learned down here. Mm. You know, I think that it was Nelson Mandela said that the first the first uh, step in the road to, to reconciliation is to honestly remember the past. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because, you know, when you talk about it there, people would have said, well, that abandonment maybe came in, in stages that there were, there were, there was always people trying, you know, and Sean O'Higgins being somebody, you know, there were people like at, in levels in Irish government trying to make a difference. Yeah. It was, it was very, no, I don't disagree with it that. was very slow. Um, but, you know, but, and, I mean, and, you know, and one of the, one of the things that some, like somebody was, you know, in 1972, the British embassy was burnt down here after Bloody Sunday. There was a huge um, between, you know, 1969 and 73, 74, there was a there was probably a general support for and sympathy for um, northern nationalism, which changed as the campaign became and we talked about Alan Black in, in the second part of that as well became as as there became more tit for tat sectarianism when the when the sectarian killings. But, but it doesn't it doesn't affect I mean, I think that the point is that the um establishment, Southern establishment, resolutely turned against the North. <coughs> I mean, not the people. 
think that the I think that the people just were sort of then left in the dark because of censorship and all of that. I mean, I mean, Conor Cruz O'Brien actually tried at the time that the second TV license came along. So it was RT one, and mm. then there was a second, and RT wanted to operate a second channel, RT two, and he actually lobbied for BBC One to be given that second channel, so mm. that you would have the official British view of 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 the troubles. But I think see the thing I, I mean, think the last thing that anybody that that anybody in that free state regime wanted was for the people in the mm-hmm. south to hear the truth. But no, it, and that's the reality of it. Well, I think that that's uh, and I think you know one of the things that we've got from from those episodes is that sense of okay, lots of people feeling that there's a lot they didn't understand and there's a lot they and I know, know people friends of mine who would have an instinctive revulsion of. Uh, IRA violence and people can say oh what about the other side of it and that's fair enough and that is probably a fair point I do as I said in those episodes I think some of that revulsion towards IRA violence comes from a sense that this is we are the kind of nationalist side of things and there's a some uh, you know there's some responsibility or, or a greater abhorrence of that side than the other but I don't think there's any great sympathy for the unionist position among people I mean, in, does, the, in the, the south do either. The, do the vast majority of people not have an instinctive revulsion yeah, for do. violence, yeah, even do. if yeah, yeah. even if they believe that 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 there's no choice. I mean who 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 really accept the psychotics? Yeah, no that's that's actually actually are not repelled by yeah. violence. I mean to see violence. It's all very well talking about it in the abstract, but to see mm. violence, you know, know. to see a, to see a a a, 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 a dying policeman, or, you know, to mm. see Father Alec Reed trying to give mouth to mouth resuscitation to one of the corporals that were murdered, yeah. one of the most gruesome murders of the Troubles, the two corporals and Father Alec mm. Reed came there, and uh, an AP photographer just happened to catch it, you know, as he looked up in huge distress that these men were dying and there was nothing he could do. The blood was over his face where he'd been given the mouth to mouth resuscitation trying to revive him. I mean, who mm-hmm. who could think that there was anything good in that? You know, but this is this is a different point. I mean, the idea of us being cut adrift was summed up in a way by by a poem that Seamus Heaney wrote. Because Seamus Heaney went to Dublin early on in the Troubles. And then there was always a feeling in the North. You know, Seamus has abandoned us. You know, he's a world figure. He became a figure of world renowned. He was in Harvard. He was in Oxford. He was, he had an audience. You know, he was a tremendously articulate speaker. Mm. He was universally respected, you know. And there was a feeling that he had said fuck all about what was happening in the North. And there was a very strong feeling around that. I mean, he lived lived in a neighbouring parish to Mm. ours. I mean, in April 1977, Willie Strayhorn who had a pharmacy in a hall and the family lived upstairs and um, I played I played Gaelic football for Derry underage with his son Kevin a great mm. lad and Willie would have been a real community man and two men came to the door they said they had a sick child and they needed something to come and would he come down and Willie went down and they shot him dead. It was two serving members of the RUC, the police force then and now, a fellow called John Weir, another Billy McGahey. They were convicted of the murder. I mean, two of the very, very few convictions of any security forces. They were caught sort of red-handed, and they maintained it had been sanctioned by their superiors. That's what they said. Mm. They said, at 
in in their confessions that had been sanctioned by superior officers. And Strayhorn had played for Balahi. You know. And in nineteen eighty four, his old neighbour Seamus Heaney wrote a very celebrated poem about the murder. You know. And uh, if I if my voice breaks it's it's the it's the what always happens to me when I think of the taking of a human life. Heaney had become plagued by his failure to provide a voice for Northern Catholics. And in the poem, he asks for forgiveness. He said, forgive the way I have lived indifferent. Forgive my timid, circumspect involvement. And that chimes with what Paul Larkin, the historian, argues, you know, that the Southern response to anyone talking honestly about the North, he said, is self-shame a phenomenon well attested in post-colonial societies. Mm. I mean, the... the uh, but isn't that a human response too, Joe? Like, you know, he... Like, I, I, like, I mean, you, you know... Like that poem, that's like, what he, he the, writes the, there is... is what's right is right. What's right is right. You know, what's right is right. I mean, it was clear what was happening. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Brian Hanley's fascinating study of the impact of the Troubles in the Republic of Ireland, 1968 to 1979... I'm sure it's a little red and it certainly mm -hmm. wouldn't be taught in schools. By the end of 1972, Section 31 of the Broadcast Act, which was Conor Cruz O'Brien, sort of, he was he was one of the, the, the driving forces behind that, you know. And I mean, he was a rabid hater of Northern Catholics. I mean, an absolutely rabid, in illogical, irrational, but, you know. Uh, and it was being ruthlessly used by Fianna Fáil, with the government then to silence all nationalist viewpoints, any news item that might tend to, to, to refer to the struggle in an honest way. And in November 1972, after Kevin O'Kelly, who was a famous RT reporter, had repeated statements on air from an interview that he conducted with the then IRA Chief of Staff, Sean McStephen, the Fianna Fáil government sacked the entire RT authority. Mm. The entire authority was sacked. Because an honest interview had been given and broadcast. And Jack Lynch, a corkman, the Taoiseach, you know, one of these great celebrators of mm -hmm. Michael Collins, replaced him by a collection of hacks, essentially, who were who were obligated to Fianna Fáil. O'Kelly was arrested, charged with contempt of court because he refused to hand over the inter interview tape, and he was sent to jail. And... Uh, Jerry Collins, who was a Fianna Fáil minister, he told the, the, the Doyle that um, these people are clearly unacceptable to the vast majority of Irish people. And um, whenever the extraordinary amended amendment to the Offences Against the State Act was proposed, which shifted the burden of proof onto a defendant in what were described as terrorist cases, it was carried with an enormous majority. Mary Robinson, who went on to become a very celebrated law lecturer and the President of Ireland, denounced the proposal, but that was neither here nor there. Fine Gael abstained, which uh, continues to be their policy in the North to this day. <laughs> and Mary Holland, Kitty's mum, uh, described the atmosphere in the Doyle Bar as Fianna Fáil celebrated their victory as being like a Kilburn pub on a Friday night. The guards were given a free hand. I mean... You see, yeah. the, 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 the measures when you read the history were extraordinarily repressive. In October 1974, the current affairs programme Seven Days broadcast a special on internment featuring interviews with detainees and their families. And it was interspersed with footage of British troops attacking 
anti-internment marches. Mm -hmm. Conor Cruz O'Brien suspended the head of RT Current Affairs, Des Fisher, and the seven-day production team. And he said publicly in the Doyle that the IRA were, quote, in spiritual occupation of RTE. And so, you know, the celebrated film director Neil Jordan, he wrote in June 1977, is it not amazing to have to turn to ITV News at 10 to find out what is happening in Ireland? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. See, I think, and I think, I think this co- does come back to a point you make, and you, you've made about it, and that sense of abandonment, because at a certain point, and I and I can remember this, and I can remember that it became rather than it being a civil rights or a human rights issue, it became, as it was for say Mrs. Thatcher in in, in Britain, it became entirely a security issue. It became we can or a terrorism issue as people saw it. And so it was just we just strangle and choke terrorism and we don't look beyond it. And we don't look be we don't look if if you're even to engage with the causes of it, you are somehow um, I disagree with you about Thatcher. We, we well, were sh- we were shit under Thatcher's shoe. You know, she had no, just, yeah, no just, human concern for us. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you no, know, we were, we were, just, why, why, why we were treated again, just exactly that same way that we were irrelevant. That, that yeah, what we, do you think we were saying? Be, we I were to be treated with contempt. No, it wasn't a security issue. It was an instinctive supremacy thing that we were shit under their shoe. These fucking thick patties, mm. and whatever we shovel out to them, whatever inhumane conditions we detain them in, you know, whether we shoot them. I mean, this week. The ombudsman reported on Patsy Kelly, nationalist yeah. councillor in 1974. He was shot by the soldiers. He was taken away. He was dumped. He was dumped in water sort of 26 miles away and his body floated to the surface because they hadn't weighed it down enough. 
there was a vast amount of forensic evidence at the scene. No one was ever arrested or charged, even though it was clear that it had been a military operation. I mean, in 1976, when the Irish government proposed the very draconian criminal law jurisdiction bill, right, and O'Brien wanted newspapers to be prosecuted for publishing material, quote, deemed subversive. President O'Dolly, who was a, a most eminent jurist, one of the great jurists in modern Irish history, so concerned was he that it was unconstitutional that he referred the bill to the Supreme Court and was hounded out of office by the government who roundly abused him, a bit like the current Tory government, you know, this complete disdain for the rule of law it when it came to the North. The thundering I mean, disgrace, wasn't that? The, uh... Yeah, I mean, uh, it, <clears throat> Brian Hanley records in fascinating detail in his book, quote, school books in Ireland stressed that the modern IRA were not to be confused with the old IRA, the men who fought gloriously for Irish freedom between 1916 and 1923. I mean, the, the Wolf Tones released the men behind the wire in support of the 2000 detainees, the people who were taken to detention camps for up to four years, including my old boy, and never charged with anything, never questioned, never told what was going to happen to them. And they were held in these miserable detention camps, you know, like something you would find in sort of Putin's Russia. And when the Wolf Tones released the men behind the wire, it was banned by RTE in accordance with the censorship laws. Now, it sold over 100,000 copies and it was number one for five weeks. But the point was this, that it was banned, you know, as was anything that was seen to be remotely honest. I'm not going to say sympathetic. I'm going to say honest about the North. You know, and what you had was, instead of being honest about the North, being firm but fair with the British, pointing out the atrocities of the IRA as well, you know, saying, this has got to fucking stop. Mm. But we're going to do this in an open-handed and honest way. Mm. You know, and we're not going to demonize and vilify Catholics in the North, you know, who are beleaguered who have no one to stand up for them, who have been left themselves alone to fend as best they can against the might of the fucking British Empire and the security services, instead of that, and maintaining a humane and fair stance, successive Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael governments not only abandoned us, but they vilified us and they stigmatised all of us with the taint of provoism. It was all like, oh, they're all fucking, fucking nationalist fucking Catholic fucking savages you know and that was that was the line but when you say successive Fianna Fáil governments Fianna Gael governments abandoned the north like yeah. was, was there not for a lot of that period people tried trying to Who? do things Who? well Charlie Hoy he was doing stuff well he tried to, he tried to run guns at the start of the troubles um, that was it well like and then, you know, then Robert, he denied it Albert Reynolds Albert Reynolds did things that, like that's it. different that's different why because at that point in time, at that point in time, and Albert, I always felt that Albert was genuine and wanted wanted things to be done mm. and knew honestly what was going on. I wasn't lying about what was going on. Albert opened the door as far as I'm concerned. You know, Albert opened the door. Uh, obviously, that process started with Father Alec Reid, mm. Jerry Adams, John Hume, 
Father Alec Reed persuading John Hume, look, we must, you must speak to Jerry Adams yeah. because because this constituency cannot be neglected. Don't forget, don't forget, Dion, that for all the talk now eulogising John Hume in the South and the only the only decent Catholic that ever came from the North, Hume was vilified as well. Yeah, no, I know that. I mean, the 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 this, the, the the Irish Independent, the Sunday Independent, constantly vilified him. Mm. You know. And whenever it emerged that he was in secret talks with Jerry Adams, I mean, all hell broke loose against him from the establishment down here. You know, now he's a hero, of course. You know, I mean, second only to Bono in securing the peace process. <laughs> 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 I see. I see Bono actually tried to that their gig, their gig, cemented the peace process. Sure it did. Fuck a monkey. Sure it did. But, yeah, but, but uh, look, again, no, you but know. you know, if you go back to, if you go, no, I look, I accept. I look, it's not from. I can't say accept it because, like, it that sounds that's wrong, the wrong thing to say in terms of what you're talking about and how Northern nationalists, Northern nationalists felt. But when you go back to Leonard Hutchinson and you listen to that as a starting point in 1968, and even you go to something which. In the, at the time is so is so small in some ways in terms of achieving the things that are helping northern nationalism in the way you talk about you talk about something like the anglo irish agreement but at the time if you take that's what 17 years after leonard hutchinson and you look at the protests like paisley protesting about this the idea that there would be any irish representation or you know uh, intervention allowed in the north at all was seen you know there was hundreds he had a hundred thousand people on the street so like somebody like Gareth Fitzgerald I'm not, who, I'm not saying an, I'm not saying no, a, a military you, intervention that would have been out of the no, question but when you say southern but to be, when you say southern government honest, inter, honest interventions yeah, but, but when you say a gov- they were all abandoned like, they were but, but the things like that which won't, mm. weren't any good on the ground to you there were still some attempts but, but, to get from where Leonard Hutchinson was to somewhere loyalism, loyalism in the north was largely armed by the security services in the north. Mm. You know, like the Glen, yeah. the Glen End guy, yeah, you yeah. Know, killed sixty-seven Catholics. They were all soldiers and police officers. Mm. You know, that's that's where their arms came from. That's why they were able to get in and out of all the murders without mm. without event. That's why the, that's why that's why it was it was, you know, you know, it was extremely dysfunctional society. But instead of calling any of that out. Um, that's fair. The, the, yeah, free, yeah. the free state just went along with the. No, the, I think the that's, and I think that's, and it I was, think, you know, and it was like that these fucking evil. No, and I think that's because, and I think that again, there, yeah, you know, yeah. All, you know. And I think, I, well, I think it comes from a place as well of just wanting nothing to do with it. It was more than that, because once censorship came in, there was a relish, there was a, there was a, there was a, a sense of triumph, as described by Mary Holland, like a pub in Kilburn on a Friday night when they got the, the most repressive legislation, in my view, that's been passed in a Western European country outside of, you know, Russia, for example, yeah. you know, in the modern era. But when they got that through, you know, banning, banning songs, mm. you know, and and and, you know, that that relish. was way beyond saying, look, what can we do here? What what can we do? I mean, in in the in the in the the Garda annual review I'm just trying to I'm just trying to 
think about when that was. Yeah, the Garda Annual Review in 1974 contained the memorable phrase, because they had a free hand. I mean, brutality mm. was widespread. False confessions was widespread, just like it was in the North. You had an extremely repressive regime. Easter commemorations were banned. Culture of fear had gripped the state broadcaster. But the Garda had a free hand in relation to the IRA or people you know, coming down from the North. And in the 1974 Garda Review, there was the memorable phrase, thank God for the IRA. That's, yeah. where, that's where you were, you know. But do you know what, can I zoom out on it a bit? Because when you talk about this as a post-colonial, uh, a consequence of, you know, a post-colonial world, I think that's an important point. And as we go through it and we get to where we are today, that's the important thing. I think, I think yeah. people, because I have been reading a book, uh, as I've mentioned before, my wife is half Pakistani, her father comes from Abbottabad in Pakistan and I've got more of an interest in Pakistan and its history <coughs> because of that. And uh, she's quite funny something because I've said, you know, as, as I said in that podcast, she's half English, half Pakistani. And sometimes people in Ireland will start talking to the English side of her about, uh, you know, what the English did here or what happened. And she kind of feels like something, you know, do you know the history of Pakistan? <laughs> do you know Do you know what happened yeah, in Pakistan? Yeah. Because when you talk about post-colonialism, and I would recommend as a book, The Great P Partition by Yasmin Khan about the partition of India. And, you know, on the, on the headline thing, which was uh, 75 years ago in last year, the partition of India was announced on the 3rd of June that they would be partitioning India the 3rd of June, 1947, that it would be coming into effect on the 14th of August. They displaced 15 million people, had to, had to move countries yeah. in 60, 70 days. Yeah. An extraordinary act of barbarism. And again... But see, uh, they wouldn't care. But I mean, there's no... But this is the th that's the thing. And this is the thing. And I think the, the sectarianism and the, and people at each other in the north again we have to start seeing it as a kind of and uh, as this was a consequence of a pattern of behavior oh yes yeah, it's, it's the inevitable consequences of colonialization because when you read in this book there's there's a, a, a passage i mean, I mean and, and and you know you could ask the question how can how can the unionist ruling sort of government be blamed for what happened in all of the circumstances mm. because because the North was set up to fail. I mean, it was a dy it was a dystopia from the moment that it was set up, but we were the ones who were going to have to yeah. bear bear the consequences in the main. I mean, obviously, you know that there, there were there were there were many British soldiers who lost their lives, you know, and and of course it's always the 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 the, the, the Almost always, the poor foot soldiers who are who who who, who die, but there's a, there's as a result a, yeah. of this sort of barbarism, you know. But but again, can I just can I just want before we I, we come back, I just want to just finish this point on this because it comes back to that idea again of what you say is the perception of uh, sectarian savages of, of northern nationalists. Because when you read this book, The Great Partition by Yasmin Khan, you see so many echoes of of that, and again. 
it's like okay is 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 there something genetic or is it the fact that in the in the most extreme and worst of circumstances people will do things that they they could never have imagined doing you know what i mean yeah and like this book talks about there's this one chapter which talks about the university town of aligarh in northern india which has a which had a which had a strong muslim league um faction and was very pro pakistan and you know it just tells these little stories of this evolution of of a, a, a genteel town into a place where you know towards the end of of uh, march 1946 uh, a few students from the from the university were buying cloth from a local hindu cloth merchant quibbled over the price of a bolt of fabric an altercation broke out, a crowd formed. In the arson attack that swiftly followed, at least four people burned to death and the thatched mark area of the town was left in ashes. And then it jumps on to say that uh, in the city of Aligar, a frightening level of polarisation was developing among some of the leading public figures. And by the end of the year, the Aligar University student union leader was claiming publicly to have killed Hindus with his own bare hands. See if you've got no if you've got no if you've got no government structure, law and order structure that commands the respect of both communities as we didn't have, you know. This is what happened everywhere with partition. Everywhere, everywhere that the British ultimately, when they when they had no interest left left in the place, no strategic interest, when they'd taken whatever they could rape it for, you know, or when they were forced out by military force, which was, generally speaking, what happened. I mean, it was overwhelming sort of civil rebellions that eventually forced them out, just like just like Ireland, just like the South, you know. Then the story was, look, we had created a very civilised utopia. Mm. We taught them all the language. We'd introduced business techniques there, you know. I mean, basically, we had taught them how to lead civilised lives like the British. And now these savages have turned on each other. Mm. Hey, that's it. And when we come back to where we came in on on the on how unionism and how are some unionists have responded to Joe Biden again, it is that just that combination of fearing, fearing being sold out, fearing the future, having no confidence going into the future, and lashing out kind of wildly. In a, in a way that is ultimately, and it's when you say you can almost almost can't blame the unionist government, it's almost it's it's a self destructive tendency which uh, ultimately leaves, and especially the way the way things have changed, it leaves yeah. them isolated and, thinking, and vulnerable. Think, thinking that you're better than anyone else almost always ends in disaster, and when you've got a sizable you know rump in a community who have that supremacist sort of tradition, it almost always ends in disaster. I mean, it's becoming clear, you know, which is the truth, that all the vast majority of people want in the North, all they ever wanted was equality, to be treated fairly, without discrimination and equally. Mm -hmm. You know, and you've got a situation where the DUP, they know they're going to have to come on board because, I mean, there's no other way this is just the reality of it. They're struggling with the idea of equality. It's time to move on. But as Nelson Mandela was fond to point out, moving on is only possible when we teach the past honestly 
and they they're grappling with that. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Why are you thanking me anyway? I don't know. Just something to I reject I, just, I reject your thanks. <laughs> I withdraw it. Free, I would you free state bastard. I withdraw my gratitude. Whatever you say, say nothing. When you speak about you know what. For if you know who should hear you, you know what you'll get. They'll take you off to you know where, for you wouldn't know how long. So for you know who's sick, don't let anyone hear you singing this song. You all know what I'm speaking of when I mention you know what. And I fear it's very dangerous to even mention that. For the other, it is always near, although you may not see. But if anyone asks who told you that, please don't mention me. And whatever you say, say nothing when you speak about you know what. For if you know who should hear you, you know what you'll get. You off to you know where, for you wouldn't know how long. So, for you know who's sick, don't let anyone hear you singing this song. And you all know who I am speaking of when I mention you know who. And if you know who could hear me now, you know what he'd do. So, if you don't see me again, you know why I'm away. But if anyone asks you where I've gone, here's what you must say. Whatever you say, say nothing when you speak about you know. For if you know who should hear you, you know what you'll get. They'll take you off to you know where, for you wouldn't know how. So for you know who's sick, don't let anyone hear you singing this. Well, that's enough about so-and-so, not to mention such-and-such. I'd better end my song now. I've already said too much. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.